This is the friend season. This is the friend season. Ask Adelaide and Anna. This is the friend season of Ask Adelaide and Anna. Adelaide and Anna. Welcome to Ask Adelaide and Anna. I'm Adelaide Jagade. And I'm Anna Ilet, and we are artists and friends. And today, and for our next episodes this season, we are joined by friends of Ask Adelaide and Anna and friends of me. And me. Welcome to the fourth episode of the French, the French, <laughs> the French show, or actually the French show of Ask Adelaide and Anna. Today, for our introduction of this episode, which has the theme home, we are joined by the two curators of the show that we are a part of this season. The funny thing is, we're in their workplace and they're they're at home. <laughs> so yeah, who who are the two curators of? the real show that this season is part of. Would you like to introduce yourself, please? I'm Céline Poulain. Uh, I'm curator of the real show with Agnès, and I'm also director of CAC Brittany. And I'm Agnès Violo, and uh, I am co-curator of the real show invited by Céline as an independent curator, but also as curator and head of exhibitions at FRAC Lorraine. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we are very happy to join you at CAC Brittany. We are on location. Yeah. <laughs> so we were thinking of which questions we want to address to you. And considering the the theme of the exhibition and also how we started out this season, we were wondering which people, who were you when you were teenagers in high school? Oh, you know, I, I thought a lot about that when I heard one of the episodes when you spoke about uh, popularity, because he put me back to my, my teenage time, which uh, was quite horrible for me. I did participate to the song group of the school. I was always at the first place in the, in the classroom, you know? <laughs> Uh, helping the other with their homework. And I was also a délégué de classe. And when I was at the high school, I was uh, also uh, represent for all the, all the teenagers of the high school uh, to the institution. But at the same time, I felt really uncomfortable with the, my age and I, and with the consideration of the other young people I was with. Uh, I was really obsessed by sex. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, 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 I was a kind of nerd. Uh, it was not easy because, you know, I, I was looking really, really young. And so, in fact, my fantasy were kind of, not in phase with my social life, if I can sum up. <laughs> and I was really in philosophy too. This uh, was also an important part in philosophy and comics. I was going to say just likewise, and then like Céline, but then no, because of the, the last part, when you started to talk about sex. I guess I was also like, those were not the best years of my life. Sitting on the first row, having the best marks and not very soci sociable, social as a person. I wouldn't find my place, actually. But the good thing is, because or thanks to that hard social period, I've only been to private schools and women's schools also. So it was girls' schools, so it was authority and Catholic schools and so on. And I just realized that I could find an escape place into art. So I was most of the time on my own, writing, drawing and learning the music. So... 
This is when I discovered uh, my existentialist part, which is part of my work now when I do exhibitions. I think young women uh, are lucky today to have all this information about feminism and gender theory and post-colonial theory. And I think at our time, when we were teenagers with Agnès, we were in a strong patriarchal society as we are now, but there were not a lot of uh, contradictionary voices in the media. And so I felt really alone with my questions because I felt really strongly contradiction uh, with the patriarchal aspect of my family and of my friends also. And I really would have liked to discover Simone de Beauvoir before I just did it in university. I feel similarly about my childhood, constantly feeling like things weren't right, the way that I was being treated compared to my brothers or mom was treated, and it, but I didn't have any any logic to it. It just was like something that I felt I was like, this isn't fair. It's interesting though, I, the things that happened very many years ago that still sort of revisits or is a part of my practice or the way I think today, mm -hmm. those years were not the, great, the greatest. And it's interesting to see the exhibition. It's uh, There's a high school there, right? Right across the street. Yes. So it's interesting to think about people who are going through that right now and like having those experiences that will form they are when they're older. We discuss a lot with the teenager of the high school in the front of Cac Bretigny because um, we had Laura Burekoa in residency and another artist, uh, Safwan Benslama. They were invited by Camille, uh, who used to work in Cac Bretigny. So we had the chance to record them about what they are thinking of nowadays. Um, and they are really, really questioning sexism, racism, and also all the ecological issue. So they are really uh, awake, as we can say. That's an interesting question. I'm, I'm thinking, why are they asking us about our teenage years? We were supposed to talk about home, and then I was like, what's home? It's actually, for me, home is would be uh, the exhibition, because home is the place where you feel comfortable, and you have a place, and it's secure, and it's also the place for affects. And I'm like, you didn't have this in your social family bourgeois life at the time, also because we were not connected, because it was before internet, as we all... Before iPhones. No, but this generation has access to Simone de Beauvoir. Or... I think this is the main reason why I jumped into the art uh, uh, world, uh, is because it, it's a world with transgenerational possibilities. And it's this ecosystem goes through other rules in terms of age, sexual orientations, uh, rights, and so maybe we should be thankful for those horrible years we've been, we've had when we were 12. When Celine was talking about um, your home life, I was thinking about the two questions that we have for this episode are kind of, they could be seen from a feminist point of view, like one is about cleaning. The question did come from a man, but you know, a lot of times like it's the opposite where women are trying to figure out how to get men to clean more or to like just to pick up the, the more of the domestic responsibilities yeah the next question is about making the decision whether or not to have children and going through ivf even someone who's like not sure they want to have children so i mean i can see a relationship between what you were talking about like having access to information about feminism when you're when you were younger that you wish you had access to that and a lot of these <gasps> questions that we have are still coming up when it comes to like the questions that women have. You mean uh, about taking care of the house also? Yeah. yeah. My partner is a really great man and we really share 
uh, the domestical aspect. Mostly he, he does more than I do. I was really, really bad with cleaning and, and before I met him, I didn't like the idea of home. I really prefer going to party and eating restaurant and, <laughs> and not sleeping at all. I discovered with him what can be nice also to clean the dishes and take care of someone. And I learned cooking with him. Well, we both learned cooking together because with a child, we couldn't go to the restaurant as much as we used to. And so finally, even if cleaning is still something which I don't like so much because I prefer reading, for example, or just doing nothing. <laughs> I, I feel more comfortable now with this, but I'm not alone in this. I, I think I wouldn't enjoy so much uh, doing it without him. And I'm really uh, lucky because we are really sharing that. And I don't feel as a woman in charge of the domestical aspect. When we talked about just how we wanted to uh, record this introduction, we wanted, we wanted to ask you about your young selves, but also like your idea of home. So it was kind of cool when you just started to define how you think of home, Agnes, and very much as the exhibition or like the place where you feel comfortable. Um, Celine, if you think of like what constitutes home for you? You've just said it. It's love. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting that this reality that you're you're talking about is kind of a new one. You know, if you compare it to maybe how your maternal ancestors have lived, like this is a kind of a new reality. I keep on being asked the same question since the last years from every uh, new people that I meet. And uh, now I'm realizing things thanks to you, Céline, say, when you said, I wish I had read Simone de Beauvoir earlier. And I'm like, what would have been my life if I had read those texts before? I guess it would have been the same. Oh my God, but without the, the guiltiness and the, the, the feeling that I have not achieved as a woman. It was my birthday last week. I turned 46 and everybody says, oh, so you don't have kids? I said, should this be a question again? Uh, still now? I mean, no, I don't. And I still feel like I've missed something. And then I'm like, if I had read this book before, I would have done exactly the same, probably. But I wouldn't feel like there's something missing. Because we were raised as, if you're a woman, you have to have babies. Otherwise, something is incomplete. And so I know this is why I'm giving birth to exhibitions. And, but I would have, it would have saved me a lot of uh, uh, shrink sessions and a lot of money, Celine, yes. Those readings. It's almost like we live in a time where we have more choices, but then people's mentalities still haven't caught up all the way, like the average person. Yeah, you can live the life that you want to, but then at the same time, either way, it's going to be hard if you decide to be a mother or not. Mm. There's always some kind of like old fashioned thinking that's going to affect you. Yeah. When you have one child, people keep asking when you will have the second one. <laughs> and then if you have four, they say you have yeah. too many. If you have zero, what's wrong with you? <laughs> if you have a boy, they will ask you, so now you're doing a girl. And even more, it's just that people project that let's say I meet someone for personal or professional reason, there's one moment they said, do you live on your own? And there is this unsaid question, like, do you have children? Or if I say no, they wouldn't answer. It's like they feel uncomfortable thinking that they know for me that I'm missing something. This is very, um, like, your body doesn't belong to you as a woman anyhow, since you're a little girl, you're a doll. But even now, you know, in those years, they think they know better than you do. 
I already told you, Agnès, but for me, I'm really um, fascinated and admirative of your way of living because I think uh, being on your own and doing all, all your things you're doing and, and living your everyday life as you are doing it, for me, it's really admirable. I can pay you 50 euros for saying this. <laughs> yes, but to put it in perspective with the subject, the topic of home, I'm, I'm really thinking also like you that I tend to be outside of my home. Really, so home is where I work and where I, I connect links. I connect with others, the one that I choose. And when we invite an artist, we say, I desire you, I choose you to be in my home. Home is inside. So I don't know what do you think, girls? about home. It's, I think it's a combination of, of what you both were talking about, like love, you know, feeling like connected to one person that's like, no matter where I am, that's my sense of home. But then at the same time, also fi finding and making my own world, like in the, in my art communities yeah. and making a reality that's different than what I was told I could have when I was younger. Of course, there's not, you know, depending on where you live or um, the time in in history that you live in, like there's certain choices that are not open to you, but like to be able to take advantage of the ones that are, I feel like that's my way of creating a sense of home and belonging. To me, it's also so much about connection, companionship and connection. I mean, it can also be a place, but then that place would be have to be connected to those elements for it to be home. And when you talk about Celine of how you're not interested in that, a lot of the home activities or, uh, and I very often, feel like that as well that I very often prefer to find home like outside the domestic yeah, stuff, yeah. outside the domestic sphere so do you feel at home in the exhibition the real show at CAC <laughs> <laughs> yeah especially when we when we walked into the room you know just felt it felt right it's something really important for uh, for me and for the team uh, to create a, a place when you feel welcome as a user of the space. So as an artist, but also as an inhabitant. I could see that. I was thinking just because I also have a resistance to these domestic things that we're talking about. Um, and I wonder if that it's, it's a way of rejecting the roles that people have set out for us. You know, like maybe there's nothing there's nothing intrinsically wrong with liking to clean or whatever. But then you've seen how that like has shaped women's lives where that's supposed to be what they like to do or it's supposed to be what they're in charge of in the house. So not having an aversion to being at home and doing dishes and things like that might be a similar way of rebelling against those like gender roles that have been placed yeah. on us. And I would even add that this is why Celine and I, we both conceived the real show as a uh, sort of exhibition where there is this possibility of switching roles and interactivity. And this is for, for on my end, the way I conceive an exhibition is an amount of relations. It's a situation where, where relationship and identities can be switched off and exchanged. You can be the artist, you can be the curator, you can receive an artwork, you can co-produce it. And this is the an utopian vision of society, but we can make it in an exhibition. Uh, Marta Rosler is a good example of a version of the domestic uh, part of women's life. But I think cleaning also is part of the care aspect. It can be also a good way to take care of someone. Taking care of your home is also a way of being clear with yourself. You know, I don't know but for you, but for me, when I'm cleaning, I, I'm really... <laughs> I'm listening to philosophy uh, by podcast. And now, I, I, since a few months, I'm paying a woman to clean my home and our home. 
we are doing that and it's strange because I'm coming from a modest family and in my family the women were really due to cleaning they were really proud of having a clean home by their own hands and so I feel a little bit guilty of leaving that to someone else in regards of the consideration my grandmother and my mother can have about cleaning. There is a classist way of thinking also, because maybe when you step some, you go uh, higher in the society, you can have more money and you can pay someone to clean for you. And you can say, oh, I don't like that. But a lot of people, they, they cannot do it. I think what's important is not cleaning, it's sharing this task between all the family, men, women, but also the children, you know, <laughs> they also can participate. So that was actually quite inspirational. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you a lot. It's, It's the friend season. <laughs> the question is, dear Adelaide and Anna, how can I motivate my partner to clean our apartment more? Thank you. Khalil Robert Irving. Small tasks, small favors. What do you mean? They do a little bit, you give them a little reward. <laughs> and then it becomes habit, you know. <laughs> Fights and tussles. Like, I, I know some people that I used to live with, and when something bad happened, they would have a little tussle. Then people would separate, then they would come back, and they would end up doing it together. That's what I would say, is try to do it together. And, and it, do it in small bits, too. Like, hey, I, this is what I do with Lyndon sometimes, because we're both messy. Be like, hey, let's set a 15-minute timer and just clean for 15 minutes. And then the timer goes off and we're like, well, I'm not quite done. So then we just keep cleaning. <laughs> you know, because like say you're scrubbing the tub and the timer goes off. You're not going to stop and have a half-dirty tub, you know? So you end up doing a little bit more and it sounds like a small commitment. Right. I mean, I've only lived with a very handful of people in my life outside of family. I think I've lived with less than five people. And I think... Like one guy I lived with, he just like ate in his room. He had a water boiler and he would eat ramen noodles in his bedroom all by himself. And he never really washed his dishes that I saw. He maybe washed his dishes when I wasn't around. And then I lived with this girl who had like cats and like never cleaned her apartment. So when I moved into the shared apartment, like I had to clean everything, vacuum everything. It was horrendous. The toilet wouldn't flush because she had slip tampons down it and stuff and there's so much hair in the shower and hair in the sink and I had to do all this work excavating her long hair out of the shower and the sink in the bathroom oh yeah I was like horror I find that even harder than uh negotiating cleaning with a partner like having roommates is is hard because you if you like you just said you moved into someone's apartment they'd already been there they have their way of being and then you show up and you know like it's hard to be like hey can you clean <laughs> Your place is filthy. And when I cleaned it, she was like, oh, my God, it's like when I first moved in. <laughs> Her room was what it was, but everything else stayed clean, which was good. The bathroom, not maybe not so much, but everything else did. And then besides those two people, I lived with Adelaide and Lyndon, and I think we tried to do our best. I, it's very hard for me to remember everything, but I think we cleaned sometimes together and then wash dishes together sometimes and then they would make fun of me how I cook my food always well one day I, they walked in the house and I was in the kitchen singing and I was cooking <laughs> that's a memory I have but motivation is it 
if they are someone you believe as your partner and, and, and that's your dynamic and what you believe of each other, then, then you would know the ways to motivate them. You have a commitment to get to continuing to know uh, motivate motivators for them. So I also say trust your instinct. What do you mean? Like trust your instinct on how to help motivate them to get to do something that you want them to do. Mm. Because why are you together if you don't know the things that motivate them and excite them to do stuff? Well, cleaning the apartment is just like not but the it, things like most people are that motivated for. I think for for me, I just yeah. it's, it's basically like I'm a messy person and the. I can't even see often that it's messy. To do those things I really don't like, I just have to have a schedule or like a a plan because it's not something I just like randomly attend to. No, like, oh, I think I'll I put on some great music and just... Do for fun, right. Yeah, no, doesn't happen. I'm in a project, I'm rehabbing a 100-year-old building and I'm living in it while I'm doing the work and part of this experience has been tearing out someone else's livelihood or like construction of what they wanted the space to look like. And so I'm in like a heavy cleaning mode because I, I'm not necessarily the best builder of things, but I'm one guy that I was working with. He was like, yeah, you're all right. But what you do better is, you know, cleaning up and making it look like we hadn't been here. Well, that's good. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, I consider myself a pretty decent cleaner. Sometimes I think I wish I went to trade school for a little while just so I could get some skills uh, in terms of electrical stuff and plumbing and wood construction. But I also wish we had shop in school, in high school. But I, th- I think when it comes to relationships, like people have different ideas of cleanliness. And I was just thinking about you, what you said, Anna, about like you can't even see that it's messy. And I wonder if like at some point if you deep clean your place and you took a picture of it and that picture was your reference point. And that you could look at and be like, oh, okay, there's like 10 pairs of shoes (laughs) scattered or, you know, whatever. I'm also kind of messy or kind of like keep like things like kind of like if I'm not being bothered or like if things aren't like laundry, I don't always get the time to fold up the laundry and put it away. Right now, I don't have anywhere to put it away too. But my one of my couches, one of my two couches on my first floor uh, is just covered in clothes. That's the danger of having, a, I think, a couch in your living space is it can become like a clothes horse. Like I've also localized my clutter and my mess to one place, and that's the couch. Oh, that's good. Yeah, then you just have to clean the couch, not your apartment. <laughs> I wipe the floors down and everything, and I do all that stuff. One of my aunties, not, my, not a biological auntie, but like someone I grew up with um, as a family friend, one time I was saying something about staying on top of everything and cleaning. And she, I think it was when I was in graduate school. And she was like, you're in graduate school. Like, I think you can let your place be messy. You know, she just kind of like, just let it go. You can't do everything. And what's the big deal if your place is kind of messy? Right now, my place is a wreck because I'm like, you know, I have to clear everything off my desk to record underneath it. And like, it just became a mess. You know, I came back from a trip and so suitcase exploded everywhere. And I just don't prioritize that right now. Most of the time I clean if someone's coming over. So if I know someone's going to come over, which nowadays is, you know, don't have to worry about that. Oh, yeah. That's why it's been so bad for me as well. Like No one's visiting anymore. Mm-hmm. No judgment. <laughs> Only your partner will judge you <laughs> for the mess. Espen Birkenau. Espen, do you feel comfortable with this next one about the cleaning? 
<laughs> well, I, I, I'm really comfortable with the uh, question since I like wrote it and submitted it. <laughs> it's a good question. I wrote it. You have to give advice to yourself. <laughs> it's very cute. It has a thank you in the end. I think it's the only question that has like a thank you in the end. <laughs> and now you had to answer it yourself. <laughs> Can't Adelaide try to answer this? <laughs> <laughs> for us <laughs> in my relationship like we're similarly messy and we similarly know that we need to clean up every once in a while like okay this is out of hand you know we just look around and we're like look at this place but i think the eat the really the thing that's worked the best is yeah. like setting a 15 minute timer and cleaning together because you always clean more you can play mute you put on music and then it's like you do this and i do that and you just get to it and then it's like i mean if you just did that every once in a while you don't even have to do it every day it'll be cleaner because sometimes I look at the sink with all the dishes and I don't want to do it. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to put on music and I'll just do it until I don't feel like doing it anymore. And then once I actually start, I'm just like, might as well. The next thing I'm like spraying the counter and cleaning everything and it looks perfect and I feel really <laughs> satisfied. Oh well, yeah, Espen does that sometimes. It's just that I don't do that. Do you ever try to do it together? Like, let's just, well, I guess it's a little hard. You have a kid now. Well, sometimes. She does sleep sometimes, so it happens. And before I was pregnant, I really liked like find a cup drink some beer while while cleaning yeah we had like a couple of beers and it did it was a really fun time when like to blast some music and yeah and then dance a little bit and then yeah move stuff and clean that's the best tip may, maybe but that's also togetherness because the question is i think is only one person <laughs> <laughs> yeah i need to <laughs> yeah uh, we can do this together. We are kind of like uh, I'm. I'm like the kitchen guy, and Anna's like the clothes girl, <laughs> laundry person. Yeah, laundry. So, uh, so we can do that sometimes. But then, yeah, of course, it's the baby. I should put that in the question. This is also a baby there. But... <laughs> the baby makes a mess. <laughs> not yeah. The baby's adding adding to the mess, but not cleaning, not helping. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> no but also i think it's a good tip to just say okay uh one hour or like a half an hour and just just determine yourself to do that well just for that and have like a timer on because it sets you free at the end it's a trick because you're just like well i'm not done with this plate or i'm not done with you know the sink's still not empty yeah it is kind of tricky what if i have like a task and I can, and we can just like revisit it next season. What time, what kind of task? Like, Oh, to see if you improved? Yeah. It's not like accountability is like a thing, you know? Like, now everyone knows. What if it was just 10 minutes a day? Huh? 10 minutes a day you set a timer. Like, but you're already doing laundry, you have to do that, right? But something else. So like 10 minutes a day and you could be like, I don't feel like cleaning the kitchen, let me do the bathroom. And then you just, every day for 10 minutes, you like organize something or clean something. Wow, it's like t every day. T yeah, 10 minutes! Yeah. <laughs> it's like three songs <laughs> put on your three favorite songs it would be funny to do just like arrange some of the boxes like with like stuff different stuff in just that task like a like a task you never do <laughs> yeah, well, like... give me a box that you do that <laughs> with, like, like the box that you have like some pencils and like a, some cards or you know what I mean like Maybe some keys you never use. Like these types of boxes we have a lot of. 
Oh, you have boxes with junk, with junk in them. Yeah, kind of junk, but yeah, so yeah. many. So the ten minutes could be spent going through the junk box, and then it ring- the timer rings, and you just walk away. Yeah, but actually, like that that kind of cleaning, like, is very like anxiety. Because <laughs> yeah, no. you have to make decisions. Yeah, I really don't know where to put things. So like, I, then I'd rather clean the bathroom. But it sounds like maybe you need some organizers. Like, you need things to have a place. Anna's sister did that. Organized them. Oh, she... oh, really? You got help? <laughs> yeah. And we can't keep it up. It's so frustrating. Like, we, we live in, like, a 30, 33 square meters, and it's like just, like... I mean, everything is, like, within reach. But then I guess it's, like, even more important to, like, have things kind of organized. When me and Anna started dating, Anna told me that she, she couldn't clean, that she did, we didn't know how to do it. And she told me that... If if there's like a table full of like different things, she don't clean tables. She just lines up the things like that. It looks nice. <laughs> Organized clutter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just like put them in order, like a nice collage kind of. I don't know. Yeah, that was really charming though. Like if you have desk stuff, there are there are these contraptions, you know, where you can put like there's a thing shaped for for pencils. There's a small thing yeah, for yes. paper clips. Yeah. So like. If every in because you have such a small space to work with, if everything has its place, it's easier than trying to decide where it goes because it already has that place. Tip: Just buy a lot of small boxes, then you can keep everything in small boxes. But where do the boxes go? On the table, on the one table. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think in the future, if whenever you need to get new furniture, get storage furniture. Like you can lift it, and then maybe there's things inside that have compartments and then you know things that you don't use frequently aren't in your view and if you need them like oh i need a screwdriver now we have we have a lot of like empty shelves and stuff and because the stuff like goes on the floor or like in the bunk bed like it's like this the, it's like we do have the storage spaces they, they just sort yeah. of move out of the storage spaces onto the floor Mysterious. But that's where they go. Then they just go back. Yeah, but it's hard to reach some of like the cabinets. Okay, we have all these like weird excuses. It's hard to read. <laughs> <laughs> we have a child. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, to but how to motivate is also like um, if you do this, you can get a snack. <laughs> the small rewards that keep you going. I'm always always rewarding myself. If I'm in my mind, I'm like, if you respond to five emails, then you get to. I don't know, eat a cookie or something, you know? Yeah. Something I would do anyway, but I'm delaying I'm delaying the pleasure and then adding it to a task. Would that help, Anna, if I said, like, t- maybe I can say, like, if you clean that one cupboard, you can, uh, we can take a walk. Oh, if you would take a walk with me. <laughs> yeah. I would easily do that. See, this just turned into a date. <laughs> <laughs> That's, like, the nice thing, actually, going for a walk with Espen. I'm I'm usually jealous of his uh, drawings, so if they can like take time to go for a walk with me. Oh, you mean the time he spends the time he spends on his drawings? Yes. So it means you get some individualized attention outside the house, outside the chores, outside the work. But then I'd only talk about the drawings. You're not allowed to talk about those drawings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can you can talk about the drawing as long as you take me outside. Yeah, but maybe these these reward things is good. Relationship rewards. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even if it's rewarding yourself or coming up with a reward you both like, like eventually, you know, could be 
we get to have a beer after we're done together on the rooftop. Oh, this was like a good um, happy end. <laughs> yeah, great. Annelise Kogan. Yeah, I tried many things through the years. I think we lived together now for nine years. But I mean, I think I'm quite lucky in many ways. But of course, like I get annoyed at him with the cleaning. Are there some, because sometimes there are like tips, you know, that work for a period of time and then, then you can change over, you know, like change your shampoo, they say, you know, like maybe you can like change strategies from time to time. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking like I deny like access to my breasts, for example. <laughs> I'm, I try, I'm trying that with like uh, different um, different things, like that uh, he does this snooze, you know, the... Oh, the um, nicotine, chewing tobacco. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and on and off, and like it's really annoying, like that is really annoying, and to clean that is annoying. What kind of cleaning? If he leaves it somewhere, for example, or if it's like on the floor, or I don't know. Obviously, it doesn't happen a lot, I know that, compared to many other people that I know. But then I try to do the breast access thing or deny denial but i don't know if it works so well <laughs> that's the one tip you have <laughs> yeah maybe uh, i guess i get become quite angry you know that's not a tip uh, to be uh, like annoyed that's never a good like way to solve anything so you have to be smarter than them you know <laughs> no i thought about this a lot yeah i try different things like i try kind of making strategies but like we've had quite a hard life uh, last year uh, and now we just moved and everything's kind of chaos it's been a lot of chaos lately um so it's hard to you know pressure someone to clean better or whatever but yeah he's he's a very weird person so I, I feel like I clean a lot somehow but he thinks it's not true so I don't have any tips actually <laughs> I have, um, I'm, I don't want to say too many identifying things about this couple because they would definitely know who they are, but um, she was complaining that he doesn't do enough around the house and doesn't do mental work because a lot of the work that one partner does is like making sure you remember things. And so she made a, a little chart that had like boxes and, and it, you know, showed like how many, how many things that she does. And then she did the ones for him and it was like not a lot. And then he was outraged because it was like, well, you didn't put all the things that I do on there. You just put what you think I do on there. And so this kind of tallying, do you think that kind of tallying would work or it just causes anger? Well, maybe it can help in that sense that it, it is also like a therapeutic thing, you know, that you kind of, maybe the other person can actually say what they are doing. I, I guess like as days go by, you know, sometimes you can forget like what are, what are they actually doing? <laughs> Because they're mm -hmm. kind of like not doing the stuff that you want them to do, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then you forget like what are they, what are they actually doing? So I think I remember we were at the therapist once and then uh, we talked about the situation and then I, I had to tell like what, how it was, you know, he had to respond with kind of listening, but like, obviously, like I had interpreted the situation in a totally different way. So then he could kind of tell me how he interpreted it. Now it's a bit like about something else, you know, but Maybe this mirroring thing or like kind of hearing each other out can also be good, you know, or if I make, I'm not, I'm not sure if I make sense now, but. No, you do. Basically, you don't, you're not in the mind of the other person. So sometimes you're not even noticing what they do and they need a chance to be able to say and for you to consider that they do things in other ways that maybe you don't have to think about. There are certain things I do that my partner never has to think about. Like I take care of financial stuff and retirement stuff and whatever. And then there are things he does 
you know, like, I'll just realize, oh, it's been, like, weeks since I did the dishes, because he just does it. So there's certain thing, ways that we, like, make each other's lives lighter. And if you can, like, see it, then maybe you're like, well, I actually would trade that for not ever having to do the dishes. Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's important then to kind of hear each other out, I think. It's like, yeah, if you're in that thing that, like, oh, like, you're not cleaning, and I'm cleaning all the time, and I think I can get a bit like that sometimes, then... It's hard to listen, you know, to the other, like, and, and think, like, what are they actually doing as well? Because he's doing a lot, like, mm. he's doing a lot, obviously. But, um, yeah, I, w- I would appreciate some tips, too, actually. <laughs> I was just thinking that one of the things that he's doing when he's doing the dishes is, is um, like, watching a basketball game on his phone. So he'll prop it up and watch. And it's something that I wouldn't do with him that would take time away from when we're being together. But then it's, like, an excuse to be able to do it. So if there's if you if you're the person who needs to clean more, then just like pick a podcast you like or music you really like and you're doing something you're doing something that you maybe that your partner hates. Like if they hate a certain type of music, you can never play it out loud. Then you get to listen to it and and clean at the same time. So there's some kind of like trade off for that that time. It's interesting this thing with like um, because you oddly asked like, is it a good or bad thing to sort of compare amounts of tasks or things you do and in one way I think it's it's like with money like it's it's not necessarily useful to like see exact amount of money or how many hours spent doing this and that and that but at the same time it's really important to see what the other person actually is doing and maybe that could be like a good start either way to sort of get some kind of grip on what kind of work is the other person doing I think with me because I'm probably exceptionally selfish. If we both, me and my partner, like we both spend money and I like automatically assume that he's been spending way more than me. But then when we look at it, it's like, yeah, it's just basically I think I'm better <laughs> often. So that it's really good to actually do like fact check uh, my assumptions. Um, I agree with, with what you said about like it doesn't help to be keeping track of who earns what if you're sharing you know, if you're sharing your finances together. I think what's important is if somebody says something that and it makes them feel a certain way, that's what's important. Like if someone feels like they're cleaning all the time, then you need to address that. Like, why do they feel that way? Is it true? But sometimes like, you know, my partner will say like, what you're complaining about is really silly. And I'm like, the, the issue isn't the thing that I'm complaining about. It's like how I feel like this is important to me. Yeah, this is important to me. So whatever it is, that's the root of it. Like we need to talk about it because you can't just say like, I don't care about that thing. So it's silly. It's like, I care about it and I live with you. Absolutely. I totally agree. And it is all about that because if you feel like that you are kind of like, again, I'm doing this and again, I'm doing that, you know, and like, I'm always doing this and maybe there's like some bad periods or bad times or I don't know, you know, and then it's like, I think the small things can become like super big, you know, and that's kind of crazy sometimes. I think how, uh, yeah, how bad one can feel, you know, and it's not about that the other person like can't clean or something you know it's just like I think you fall also into these patterns and roles and stuff you know when you've been together a long time and yeah it's important to kind of um, be aware in a way or or mindful of the other or whatever but it's just so much all the time you know and when you have a child too it's like I mean you clean but it's like you know what's the point (laughs) (laughs) so yeah but luckily she's starting in uh, Montessori now so they only clean all day so maybe she will be super clean <laughs> that's so true I was I used to work at a Montessori school and I was surprised to see them cleaning leaves individual leaves of a plant with a cotton ball 
What? Is it a thing with Montessori? Yeah, the kids, are, they do meticulous, and the kids, it's I guess it's to teach focus and hand-eye skills, but a little three-year-old, she was wiping every leaf on a plant. Wow. We gotta move to a city where there is a Montessori school. <laughs> You're like, this will solve all my cleaning problems. <laughs> yeah, I think it will be good for Ruby, actually, because she's quite a uh, handful, a little mm-hmm. discipline. Yeah, and it's in a good way. Like, the kids don't realize they're doing work. It's just like the thing they do. I think that is what I think one should also do with one's partners. That's what I meant, that you kind of have to be smarter than them. So you kind of have to set it up. It's exactly actually like Montessori. Now I'm like getting this epiphany. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because it's like about, for example, about they have this idea of like if you have like a puzzle or something, you know, that you have to show them that you take it out one by one. Because usually kids, they just take it and they just throw everything, you know? And then you're like, no, like you have to take it up again. But it's like, they say that if you teach them how to take it out, like one by one and take it in one by one. So you never have to kind of, you know, be angry at them or tell them off that they like were bad or something, you know, that they Mm. kind of threw the stuff around and stuff. This is what you have to do with your partners too, you know? You teach them somehow in a way that they don't know that you're teaching them, you know, because obviously (laughs) no one likes that either. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm trying these kind of things sometimes. I buy these boxes and stuff and I put like his socks there in the box. Like here is a box where you put your socks inside. <laughs> one by one, take them out. Yeah, sometimes the th- things just don't have their place. So it's hard to clean because you have to make decisions. If they have their place, then that's just where they go. But I like that things have their place. So I'm trying these little things. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is maybe one of the harder questions you know how do you motivate someone to clean it's really hard actually but i guess it has to be with love somehow you know obviously not like out of anger or denying things or whatever <laughs> um dear Adelaide and anna how the hell can an artist decide whether or not to have kids of their own i am so ambivalent to the whole thing I'm even going through the whole IVF process at the moment, and I still feel enormous ambivalence. Why? Eric Seyti-Jorgensen. Well, I have uh, I have a daughter, uh, so uh, it wasn't a super like planned out decision. That's kind of not how my brain works, and it's kind of not how my partner's brain works. In general, planning to have kids for me is quite a foreign idea, because it's never going to be a good time, and it's always going to cost you a lot of money, and it's going to cost you even more time. And if you just plot it out, it's never going to make sense, because it's going to take away from what you right now think is the most important things in the world like your career and uh, then if you look at it like that it'll never make sense to have kids i don't think it'll ever make sense for anyone to have kids if you think about it like that so if you really want to have kids you kind of just have to go like well am i in a situation where i can handle it can i deal with it because i've been in situations before where if i were to have a child that would have been a disaster that would have been terrible so you have to ask yourself those questions like do you think i have the resources to be a good parent but if you're asking these question this question here i don't think that's the issue like i think you've thought about it a lot like a lot and if you've thought about it a lot and you've gone so far as to like begin the IVF process well you probably really want the kid like at least deep down I would assume that you really want the child and then my my advice is just like trust yourself like if you really want a kid don't 
think about it more than that. If you really want a kid, you can take care of a kid, have a kid. That seems to be the standard uh, Norwegian advice. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was thinking about this question, of course, I've dealt with this question myself, but thinking of this question, I was also thinking of how it's like one of those few kind of decisions or things you like you can't change like you can't really like oh i changed my mind oh hold on no i i i don't want it take it back return it <laughs> that's that's not really how it works so i guess this question also depends a lot on what kind of um, national structures of uh, and welfare and support and that kind of stuff like what's what would make it possible financially socially like to because as an artist to continue to work as an artist and have a kid absolutely and I, uh, my answer might be common for uh, for norwegian but i have not had a kid in norway my kid is in france and uh, i have received absolutely zero support from any government here in france uh, child care especially in here in the countryside is quite uh, quite a strange concept like uh, the mum is supposed to stay home uh, the dad is supposed to work like kindergartens aren't a thing uh, so if you want childcare, you have to pay for a private nanny and then they start school quite early and then uh, you send them to school and you pay a very small sum for that but before that like uh, when they're toddlers you're left you're on your own if you're here and uh, you do it, that's uh, very, very strange for most Norwegians to hear that, like, yeah, you're, as a mum, usually here, because France is extremely sexist, uh, you're supposed to stay home with a kid for, like, the first few years. And if you want something else, well, the government is certainly not going to help you very much with that at all. Definitely sounds like my bibs wouldn't be born if we lived in France. <laughs> <laughs> or the US, where the average cost of birth, no complications, $10,000. So unless you have ten grand sitting around or you want to be in debt. Um, to me, I mean, there is some level of planning that needs to happen if, um, you know, the person who's going to give birth to the child has to decide to stop some kind of birth control that they're taking, whether it's like a pill or to go and get an IUD taken out. So that's a really decisive moment if you decide to do that. You are deciding that this is a possibility. Like from mm -hmm. my perspective as someone who's child free is that there's a lot of social pressure. There's like, like you get to my age and a lot of your friends are having kids and you're I don't have a lot of pressure from family, but, like, my sister's like, oh, I'll never be an auntie, because, like, me and my two brothers aren't having kids. I think, be like, as a woman, when you get to a certain age, it's like, well, it's now or never, you know? Like, did you feel that, Anna? Like, oh, I'm getting, I have to make the this decision in the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. That's a lot of pressure. I think that perhaps, like, if we had more time, that we, a lot of women wouldn't have kids at this age. But I think because there's a physical limitation that a lot of people sudden, like I've started to see suddenly a lot of friends have kids at 38, 39, 40. I had a feeling that I wanted to have a kid. And when I met, actually, when I met my partner, I was like, hmm, we're having kids. Well, listen, like I knew that really, very quickly. But sort of for it to become like, nah, now is the time where I really want this to happen. It wasn't even that much about like having, like that there would be a child in my life. It just really felt like it was like time for a new chapter. So it was some kind of feeling or idea that there was like a new stage. Like I was ready for like a new stage in my life. It was like I had been living some kind of student lifestyle for 15 years or something in, or for a long time. And I was, now it's like a new era. Yeah, I just really felt this like 
maybe 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 that is like the biological clock or how it sort of became clear to me that okay it's a new chapter and it definitely is a new chapter and another thing i realized now is as well that i think it's super challenging and i wouldn't be able to do it on my own and that's something that i've been thinking a lot of times like so if i didn't have a partner i would have to make sure that i have would have some other people around me because community 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 it's so difficult to do things on your own i think How's it affected your artistic practice, like uh, your days in the studio and your time to make work, things like that? Oh, definitely. And I think in that sense, uh, when it comes to the question of like, can I do this as an artist? Because I think, because it sounds like that she's doing like IVF and that it's it sounds like she got some like money or some some kind of things are settled if she started that process. But yeah, the actual way it sort of uh, will do something about the structure of your day and time that will happen. And in that sense, I think it's also crucial for me to, or like, that's why I said like I couldn't have done it in the France or the U.S. If I can't work or do art, I feel so quickly very miserable. So it really depends, I think, on what kind of support structures I would have to be able to to do it. Like you feel like it's enough. It's enough now that you're actually a mom. No, it's like now we're in a period where I won't. Yeah, where we won't be able to have kindergarten because she's not. Uh, yeah because of how it works here in Norway and I think that's like a huge challenge like but knowing that in in the fall we will have kindergarten that then I know okay it's fine but if it would always be like that and it would be too costly to yeah and and basically not have enough of my own time I would find it very very difficult yeah I was talking to my sister about this yesterday and she was like oh she said I hate the idea that people have that you Like, someone's always wanted kids, or they have to want kids, or they're like, oh, I want a baby. Like, this romanticized idea of really wanting to be a mom, because she said that wasn't how it was for her. She just was like, I'm just going to have kids. You know, she was just like, "What in my life, I picture having kids. Not that I have, she, it's not like she loved babies or anything like that. Um, and she thinks a lot of women are ambivalent, but then you just make it work after. And she thinks, she leans towards, like, if you're ambivalent, just do it. And I lean towards, if you're ambivalent, don't do it. And so, like, obviously our lives show that. I mean, maybe things would be different if I lived in another country, but just seeing what people go through, you know, and for me personally, not having a strong desire, like any kind of yearning to have children, it just doesn't seem like worth the effort. You know, I think if I, if somebody really wants to, they do, despite the cost of the birth, despite the cost of childcare, despite the lack of government support in my country. But I was also thinking of, um, about how you also have a close relationship to kids in your life in your family sure. that there are kids because i must say i'm not generally that fond of um, children but i would i just really like the idea of being more <laughs> being more so, uh, plural like the the little family unit of like expanding oh N now i think really sounds like the person wants to have kids but that's interesting how like how i read and i have kids and you maybe lean towards the other way and you and i like kids Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If it's like, oh, I want kids in my life. Oh, yeah, maybe you can have kids in your life, but not have them on your own. Like, you don't have... You have to make an extra effort, too, because my nephew now, he's 12, and I feel close to him whenever, like, I lived with them, you know, during the beginning of the pandemic, and I was there when he was born. Not there, literally, but, you know, like, I took care of him as a baby, so I feel close to him, but then I also realize I live far away, and I have to make an effort, because he's living his little kid life, and I have to be like, hey, so I, like, sent him a TikTok or whatever, you know, like I, he just got a phone. So I like sent him stuff. So he has to know that I'm alive. 
<laughs> and thinking and thinking of him. And so, like, yeah, I'm just going to have to make more of an effort because I do want to have a relationship with those kids. Mm. And, like, I asked my sister, like, what are any special events coming up, performances? And she's like, they're all virtual. So, um, but in the future, I plan to, you know, if they have something special, like, surprise them and show up at their graduation or their performance or whatever. Yeah, I really like them, especially. And I, I really like kids in general. And I've worked at schools. And I just, in general, tend to get along with kids. But I don't want to live with them permanently. And be responsible. Like, you know, emergencies happen. I'm not cut out for that. It's so weird. It's like, I don't like kids, but still, I'm like, I walk my That's own. how my sister is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Weird. She had no yeah. particular leanings towards kids, and it's different when you... Don't worry, you're not alone. <laughs> you don't like kids either. <laughs> I really don't like kids. I cannot be around them. Like, I do not understand them. Like, I refuse to do all art projects that mediate to kids, for example, which really <laughs> hurts me in Norway, because they want to give so, so much to that. And I was like, nope. Like, I am not dealing with that. Like, if there's pensioners... I would love to work with them. Okay, this is so weird, though. What's wrong with us? Being like, we can't stand kids, and we are the ones like, oh, yeah, I want to reproduce. <laughs> you have to do kid stuff with your daughter. So how, how does that work? Well, I don't really do that much kid stuff with my daughter, to be honest. That's, that's the truth. Like, a lot. Because the thing is that a lot of the time, I'm not here. Like, that's, like, a big part of her life. I'm just not here. It's just the way it is, living in the countryside, me working, doing what I do. So I'm not around always and then for the rest of stuff like no like people say that you like change the moment the kid like appears like nope i'm exactly the same as i was before like i think i'm more empathetic in general i think that my thought processes are more empathetic i think that i've you know calmed down a bit uh, in many ways but like when it comes to kids nothing's changed like i didn't like kids as a child i did not get along with children in elementary school I was a really weird kid in like junior high. I always felt like I was like 35 and now I caught up and I'm on the other side of that. But uh, no, and then I had my daughter and like, yeah, I engaged with her as a person. But like kid stuff, no, not really. Like I, I take her to museums. I take her to contemporary art gallery openings exactly like i would do uh, otherwise i'd and uh, kid stuff but she can do with her grandparents and all that like i'm one kind of impulse and other people can do the rest so i don't think it's mandated but yeah like i could not have a kid on my own and like i did not go like i have to have a child it was something that happened and uh, it works here because my partner has a big extended family. Like the grandparents live in a house right across there on the same property. The great grandmother has another house on the other side of our stables. There's a lot of family like on this property and there's always people around. Like in the summers there's like 20 cousins around and all of that. So like that family thing, my daughter, I always knew would have from that part. And then I can provide some things that I think would have been interesting and useful for me to have as a kid too. Like having that more like adult person that treats you a bit like an adult and takes you to like adult things and introduces you to the world and takes you seriously. Like I talk about her art with her seriously. Like I kind of treat her like an adult. Like I never thought that I would be like this 
Mr. Rogers kind of dude. Like, I'm really not that. And, uh, you, but you don't have to. And, uh, like, my daughter is really happy. Like, I have seen so many projects in my life, like, go up in flames. Like, I'm quite a phoenix at this point. But my relationship with my daughter has always been great. Like, she's always been super happy. She's doing well in school. She's quite well balanced. Like, she's doing well. So I don't think that, like, it's a necessity to be a kid person to have kids but i also think that yeah if even if you really love children and you love to be around them you don't have to have your own there there are family members uh, here that uh, don't have kids of their own and they come and play with my daughter and they come and uh, do stuff with her from time to time and that's amazing like my daughter loves it they have a good time and uh, it's great it's a new impulse and like that's super valuable and to have like a cool smart aunt that can introduce you to cool stuff and talk to you about stuff from a different perspective and all that that's amazing and like i would like i welcome that into my daughter's life and i think that's in a way undervalued it's fantastic so we really shouldn't minimize that kind of contribution because it is so important in a kid's life and i think what you say about having extended family around and that totally changes the situation because everybody's sharing responsibility for the kid. If there's an emergency, you don't have to find a stranger to take care of your child. Uh, my family in Ghana, most of them live in the same, like there's three buildings and they all live in different parts of the buildings and share a courtyard. And I remember seeing my cousins and they just kind of roam freely, go f going from house to house or asking an auntie for this or an uncle for that. And I think it, it can be hard when people have that kind of situation to understand the isolation that can happen in certain societies. Like one of my one of my cousins has six children. He's like, just have a kid. Like to him, it's like, whatever. And I'm like, uh, well, no, <laughs> it's not that simple. <laughs> you know, it's like some people it doesn't change their entire life. And then others, it's like monumental your ability to do anything. I remember my, when my sister's kids got old enough, she was like, oh, I can finally like leave them home for half an hour and go to the store or do something like that, you know, because she doesn't have that kind of proximity to a support network. Yeah, zero to one is a big change. So hey, at least we're the two weird, uh, two weird parents giving parental advice. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. It's like the two people like, no, I don't like kids, but... Yeah, I still, I still try to like explain to myself like why I want it, but I couldn't, I really couldn't under like I don't think my reasoning was good enough, so I sort of just um, sort of admit somehow to myself that I think it is this like biological weird thing that um, yeah or ideological. No, I think it's like ethically wrong to have kids. <laughs> I mean, ide idealizing what it like, what you want your like an idea of what you want your uh, life to be. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, when I'm old, what do I want my life to look like? Or when I'm middle aged, what do I want my life to look like? Mm. Because um, you know, there was a certain point in history where children, most of most of history, children were useful. You have kids and they help you on the farm or whatever. And then when you get to the point where kids are no longer workers, in order to convince women to have children especially if they have control over their bodies, then you have to make a romanticized idea of what that is. And so that we see a lot of romanticized ideas of motherhood. It's a weird because it's a role that is like praised mm. and then at the same time not respected. You know, it's like, oh, mothers, mothers are the greatest, mothers, blah, blah, blah. The world, you know, wouldn't exist mm. without mothers and all this mother stuff. And then at the same time, it's like, well, then why isn't it being treated that way? Like socially and in terms of laws and benefits and things like that. 
No, it's absolutely spot on, and I mean, uh, I I can't imagine what it's like in the in, like in the US, but I'm coming from Scandinavia and coming to uh, to France, and especially the south of France. It's even for me like like there's a clear limit to what I can understand of these things. But uh, seeing like the inherent sexism and the systems here, and how like things are expected and things that just don't exist, even I was like shocked and horrified. So I can't imagine what it's like to experience these things firsthand because it's uh, it made no sense to me, and it feels like. You know, back into the 50s yeah. and that's france that's like that's the south of france wow well i hope we gave some helpful advice for this person even though it seems like they're on the path on the path to uh, parenthood annelies <laughs> kogan <laughs> that's a good question i think and a really important one too but this person is alone or what was that kind of part of the question sounds like me <laughs> i think the ivf also makes it somehow a bit different i guess It depends what's happened before. Uh, like if they tried for a long time, many, many years or something, you know, that can happen and then they get IVF or, or is it like some other reasons? Like, I guess that also plays in like, I mean, for me, it was super ambivalent and uh, difficult and like age and art and life and everything, you know, plays in and, and, and I wasn't sure it was going to work either, you know? So I think that's also a thing that if you kind of, well no one is sure ever you know if it can it's gonna work or not but when you're kind of already in IVF then you know that there is some issues you know so for me it was really difficult like everything around this process did your ambivalence only last until you got pregnant or did it continue throughout your pregnancy through the pregnancy absolutely but but I think it was like different phases because like um, you know first it happens like you are pregnant and you're like oh my god I'm I am pregnant But then you don't like there is, you know, obviously a period where you don't know like what's going to happen, like it might not happen. And and that's kind of difficult as well. Like if it will work, it will work. If it won't, it won't. And what what are we going to do then? And like, yeah, for me, it was really difficult. Like everything actually I have to say, like, honestly, that it's really one of the most difficult things I've done. And also to being pregnant as well. Like I had quite a lot of problems, but it's like the ambivalence. I think it changes, you know, it's like different stages because it becomes so physical you have someone in you like that's just so surreal unbelievable like i get this weird feeling in my body it was uncomfortable for me also that like maybe i wasn't so like you know oh this is amazing like i'm super happy i was like so relieved when she came out <laughs> i was like just give her to the dad you know i was just so relieved that it kind of like she survived and i survived and somehow it was over like that process i'm very fascinated those people that really like want to get pregnant and i get pregnant and i'm super happy and like everything is well I, i'm just so fascinated by that like I, i don't understand it at all but luckily i feel like also there has been people talking more about this they're kind of like also like feel weird and obviously if you get pregnant then you are also very lucky and like you have to be grateful and you know all these things because many people can't have children for different reasons but i think it's good to talk about it that you feel like really ambivalence i totally understand it like oh it's i get really chills now to it it's really great to hear you say this because i feel like there's a lot of painting of motherhood that it's just all wonderful and feels great and people are thrilled to be pregnant I've been more ambivalent ever since I got pregnant and still am kind of. I didn't go through IVF. I was starting before COVID to go like to a fertility clinic thing, but then it worked itself out probably with me not traveling anymore or something. But my ambivalence started when I got pregnant. I guess then it just became more real. Like with IVF, then it's I guess it becomes more real and physical right away. 
with all the things you have to go through. Yeah, but then it's also so clinical in a way. So for me, actually, I think the IVF was good somehow for my mental, <laughs> like how I am. I think I'm quite weird, actually, uh, as a person in general. But uh, also with that, like, I it was kind of good because it was like some kind of like a bit like step by step, you know, like, and I kind of quite like that. What's the next step, you know, and then we go there and we see if it's happened and, and also very fascinating process, like how it's impossible to do it, you know. And I got really great help. The other thing is the whole art thing. And that is, of course, very a difficult one, too, because I talk to friends and people like, I guess they, they say that they have to prioritize art, you know, they can't prioritize kids. And I get it, you know, more and more in a way. And we're also living in Norway, you know, it's also very like, we are very lucky in many ways when it comes to kids, you know, but or that there is this idea of that you're like, if you have kids, you know, and then all this thing with female artists, uh, kind of just disappearing you know when they have kids and that's also a thing that is kind of probably in the back of the head of this person asking as well and it was in mine as well and still is I think also because you don't know if you're going to be that person are you going to disappear too or not you don't know you know because you it's so un, so unknown what kind of kid you're going to have are they easy baby that sleeps through the night can you actually do things or are you constantly taking care of them or if they have medical, special medical needs, that changes everything too. We had that like the whole first year and it was hell. And I'm still kind of struggling. And now she's soon too. Uh, it's much better. But it's like now that I feel better about us somehow. It's been hell, really. I really don't want to disappear. I think that's like the only thing that keeps me a bit going sometimes. <laughs> that I need that other thing too, you know. I was thinking about this uh, word ambivalence. Anything you'd have ambivalence when it comes to it, it basically means also that that it's something that you care a lot about. You wouldn't be ambivalent usually about something that doesn't really matter. Who does it matter to, you know? And is it like the society? Is it your partner? Is it yourself? There's just so many things, you know. And I think everyone cares at some point, you know. It is such a life-defining thing in one way, you know, even though I'm not saying that absolutely that that is the way to live or anything like that at all. But I think like that you care, like, you know, why do you care or if you get what I mean? Yeah, it's not a question that um, that just exists on its own. You live in a cer certain society, in a certain family, in a certain friend group. Did you feel pressure or did you say, OK, well, I... I'm not sure I want to go through this whole thing, but I do see my life having a child in it. Yeah, I mean, there's many things, I think. Of course, there is like a family pressure and more, mostly this regretting, like if you don't do it. Yeah, it's, like, it's hard to know like what life is, I think sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I feel other people have very like clear thoughts of what they want in, a in their future, like when they're this, this age or whatever, I don't know. But I, I, I kind of never felt that. And I think it's also a lot to do with art that you just never know, like what's what's waiting for you there you know you're just kind of going along with it in a way as, and trying to control as much as you can but you can't in a way and I guess one motivation was you know also that you kind of it will help like maybe the family like I, I experienced quite a lot of like loss uh death of my brother for example and and, and, my, and my family is super small and like uh, I don't know I just thought like you know, that it will create also something like not just for me, but obviously for my partner, like he really wanted kids for a long time. So he was maybe over, even like over it already. <laughs> like, but it's not always like just for you, you know, obviously you can't have kids for other people, but you're not alone again. But then you think like, oh, but what about me? Like, what do I really want? You know, and it's just like, it's a bit hard. So there is this ambivalence, I think. I think that's such an uh, interesting and fascinating point, because even though you say like, of course, you 
do it for yourself, but yourself is also your family or your extended family. It's also hard to talk about this when you have a child already, right? And it's like someone that is so present and she's like super dominating, taking over our lives, you know, she, and she's not easy and she has just so much opinion. First she took over your body, then your life. Some friends have kids <laughs> that are like, yum, 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 you know, like, oh, I'm a baby. Hey, hey, you know, like we never had that kind of, we had this like diva, like from day one, you know, like it's also painful to say or to talk about it and there's shame in it too if you kind of not regret but I I spent quite a lot of time last year listening to like podcasts and people talking about like is it possible to regret having a child Mm. you know and like all these kind of ideas because I'm kind of very into it you know like to learn more what others think but it's it's not so so many that talk about it you know yeah it's very taboo when you look at the person you say like I wish you weren't here like I don't think that but I think like there is all these elements to it and it's not just this happy time you know I'm sure it won't be like in the future like it's gonna be like super interesting life you know um well if it makes you feel any more hopeful my niece was that kind of baby and kind of toddler demanding all the attention my sister she was like okay I'm gonna get back into the world I want to go to this conference can you come with me and then watch her and it was like a nightmare like one of the most memorable days of my life just a nightmare nothing was good enough the kid was screaming and as a seven-year-old now she's one of the most interesting kids I've ever met she's very interesting kid the things she says you're just like what and I think she's gonna be like a strong and interesting woman but it can't be easy to raise a strong and interesting woman (laughs) Last Friday, like when I picked her up in the kindergarten, uh, she's very good at talking and understanding and talking about feelings and stuff. So she said like, mom, I love you. Yeah, And really showing this empathy and like kind of hug or like, how is it possible? You wow. know? Like she's not too even like I yeah. just can't. Understand. So the, the emotions go strong in many directions. But then I guess that that's one of the benefits as well as the difficulties i was like just totally like oh, what's like a like i didn't really expect it because you i think you give so much <laughs> like you give you give you give you know and you don't expect to get anything back in a way because like obviously <laughs> they're children <laughs> suddenly you get something back yeah i was just blown away you know now now the situation is how it is you know and luckily it also changes i think you know that it different periods and so maybe I don't know this person like maybe they're afraid as well of what's coming because you don't know and I always thought about like that it's good that you don't know because then maybe like if you know you won't do it you know so it's good to like not to prepare so much I think it's just to go along with it you know step by step like being an artist I guess yeah because it's like you don't know uh, like you said also like what kind of child or whatever but just have to take it as it comes like yeah. yeah so good luck to that person, I think. <laughs> Lyndon Barwa Jr. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I also kind of surprisingly am, am also ambivalent. Not about kids, because I actually like kids. You know, I think maybe that's contrary to popular belief. Like, I like them and get along with them and think they're adorable. I mean, not all of them, but you know what I mean. Or, you know, I think like most people, maybe we, because of like the images we see and like the examples set before us and like maybe the families we come from, we just imagine that that will also be our reality. And then we start living life and like maybe things change. Like maybe, you know, this urge to like be a parent doesn't come. And for me, I always imagined it would, but it hasn't. 
you know, and uh, so maybe that's that ambivalence and my partners here who would actually be like carrying and growing the child. <laughs> so um, they have some, something, maybe something else to say about this. But I do feel like we're on the same page of, of ambivalence about this and, and perhaps leaning towards not, you know, like, you know, not being parents. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know. I'm softballing it. Um you you can you can be the like the affirmative uh <laughs> person to answer this um but uh it's such a dramatic chain to life you know however you want to slice it and and yeah of course like once it happens it's it's going to be like you know an incredibly moving and like groundbreaking thing in like a positive way but there are also things about life that will inevitably change you know there are things that you won't be able to do with the same amount of flexibility and mobility and of course the world should be more amenable to that like the world should be more accommodating to new parents and 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 what that means in terms of allowing people to to sort of access the kind of activities that they want to access. But if that is not a change that is of gross importance to you, then I would I would seriously question making that change, you know, because it, I, I think if it if it's something that's being done because you feel it's the thing to do or this is totally not even on the same page. But it's like, uh, like, I can get a car, <laughs> you know what I mean? But but there are things that are involved in, in that decision to, like, introduce this thing into my life, this thing that I have to care for, this enormous expense, you know, that I'm not interested in. And while it may invite other pleasures, like, those those pleasures aren't, they don't outweigh the the kind of relief I have from not having to worry about caring for a vehicle. Again, these are these are two things that are not at all on the same page, but it's just sort of a you know, an, an anecdote of like choosing to invite something into your life, you know, that that, that does change it in a, in a particular way. And so I don't know, that's that's sort of my stance on it. You know, I would just ask the person to really interrogate themselves of like, is this something they, they themselves really want and they themselves really want to nurture for the rest of their lives? Interesting with a car. I've been thinking more about like dogs, actually, when I would never have a dog, but they never grew up. Yeah, that was the other one. <laughs> That's the other possession, yeah. But this is an artist as well, though, asking. How do you think that plays into the ambivalence or the decision? I mean, perhaps even more so. I mean, and maybe that's what I'm also alluding to in terms of, like, the world being more amenable to, like, new parents having access to activities, right? Like, for a person bearing a child like that, it's tough to maintain a practice in, in under those circumstances. I mean, Anna, you're going through this now. Actually, it's quite admirable <laughs> the things you are able to do, um, considering, you know, having being, being a new parent. But I also think, you know, you also have a partner who seems very much engaged and is, is, is very much a partner, you know, which is not the case for everyone. So that's another question to be asked as well. Um, in terms of being an artist, there are even a lot of residencies where they say you can't bring kids. So your opportunities in that way are limited. Or they say, even for me as a person who's in a marriage, I don't often say marriage, but, mm -hmm. you know, like a long marriage. And when something says, like, no families allowed, no partners, I'm like, yeah. what? Yeah, yeah. It's weird. Yeah, because, like, mo mobility in the arts is such a huge asset now. And that's one thing being a parent does reduce is mobility and flexibility and yeah those those kind of like uh yeah like spontaneous activity or even late night activity if you need to go to an opening or something you need to get child care which we also this goes back to kind of the self-care thing which we also should we shouldn't we should entertain that less and less too <laughs> you know spontaneous activity and like you know I, I think those things can consume more time than we care to to sort of give also so i think that also contributes to to kind of burnout but but yeah <laughs>
but those those things are less available to, to people who have like a, a small being, you know, that needs to be cared for that ultimately like didn't ask to be brought into the world. Right. And so so to do that, like to put that on a, on a, on a new on a new person in the world, you know, you, you got to be there for them. Right. And so it has to be something you you really want to be there for, I think. I remember as a kid, my parents constantly wanted to move. They either wanted to move to like a nicer house or they wanted to move to a different part of Florida that was more countryside or they wanted to move back to Ghana. At one point, my dad's company was going to move us all to Zimbabwe so he could start a factory there for them. I was always very scared that we were going to have to move and I was going to lose everything that I knew, like my friends, my school, my neighborhood. Because in my mind right now, no place is permanent. I mean, it's not true, but like, you know, I can always move right now if I wanted to. But then when you have a child and remembering how I felt about that, there's another person's feelings you need to consider. And that person needs more stability than an adult does. Like kids need more predictability and stability. And you've talked about this a lot with me, Lyndon, about how moving around a lot as a kid affected your personality because you used to be outgoing but then when you moved to another school then you became shy you know it's like intimidating to be thrown into a new world over and over again and and to not know if the friends that you make are gonna you know like your parents could just decide like oh we're moving next year and then so you have a kind of sense of impermanence with relationships when I was in elementary school you know I changed I changed schools within the same city right and the friends that I made at both schools were within walking distance from me but certainly lost touch, you know, with relationships with the school I left. So, I mean, even small changes like that are, are really impactful. And and I don't know, maybe like that's made me more over time, you know, it's, you know, being kind of between, you know, multiple families, you know, like having step families and different cities spread across the country and like, you know, kind of traveling back and forth between them is, has maybe like over time prepared me for, you know, moving around as an adult and like, you know, I, I kind of acclimate quite easily in these spaces now. But yeah, like during developmental stages, like, yeah, it, it's only, it's kind of retroactive, like, or, you know, in retrospect, in hindsight, like seeing like what the effect that all of that had on me, you know, in terms of instability and like meeting people and like, you know, establishing comfort and like how that affects, you know, my, my, my performance in school, for instance, or my relationship to my, to my family, you know, being so far from many of them at different points in time, like how does that affect my relationship to them now? You know, hmm. the other thing is <laughs> that we have to like be, be careful of and, and kind of maintain perspective on is like getting caught up in all the fun things <laughs> that you might want to do as a parent, you know, cause like now looking back on my upbringing, my experience, and then putting that into, in relation to like how Adelaide and I live now, it's like, oh man, if, yeah, if we were parents definitely taking our kids on trips and, you know, uh, you know, sending them to live with, you know, to, to hang out with their cousins in the summer, you know, the things that like we want our nieces and nephews to do with us now. <laughs> You know, we we sort of like dream of all of these like fun scenarios of like how we would, you know, raise a kid to, you know, to be a person of the world and all this stuff. But like, you know, that's the fun stuff. That's not all this sort of day to day, like, you know, really, really taxing, really important, you know, things of like, you know, where are they going to school? Like, what are they eating? But I've noticed that as well, though, that I'm like, okay, that I feel like I, I try to make life a little bit more fun for her, but then maybe that will actually make my life a little more fun as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, like, oh, we should, I would go and look at goats, you know, or like, usually maybe I wouldn't prioritize that, but I really like goats and maybe that could be like a really good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> But I think this then relates to a question we had last season where someone asked about what to do if they're an introvert and their kid's an extrovert. And so there's certain things you have to do when you have a kid that you might not want to. And you might even have to pretend like you like them. 
Like imagine you're like think of a sport you hate and then your daughter grows up and that's <laughs> all she wants to do. Yep. And you have to be there yeah, in yeah. the bleachers or the stands or whatever, cheering and watching this. I think I'm more solid now about not having kids. Like I'm settled and happy about it, not doing it. But I think when I was more ambivalent, you know, with this whole question of like, because of course there's people, a lot of people are like, oh, you're going to regret it. Or what is your life going to be like when you're old? And like thinking about what kind of person I am. And I would probably sacrifice everything for my kid. If the kid was unhappy, like I would change my whole life to make sure that their life was better. You know, I like, I kind of see with my mom, she had a career, you know, she's a really, she's a smart person, but she basically gave a, gave it everything up just to raise the four of us and to make sure that we like were encouraged in all the things that we loved. So she saw from an early age that I was into art and there was a museum nearby that gave classes and she would sign me up or she would drive all over the place to, for my brother to play soccer or all over the place for my sister to swim or you know, my little brother's into skateboarding, like four different people with totally different interests and totally different personalities. And her whole life was just shuttling them around and catering to their needs and trying to find ways to help them with the things they needed to do. And then when it came to going to college, uh, my parents couldn't afford to put four kids through college. So she dedicated like massive amounts of time to researching scholarships. You come home from school and the paper would be on the table that you had to fill out. She's like, I'll, you know, write this right in the blanks and I'll type it for you. Because it used to, you know, you used to have to like type it on a typewriter. You know, she just dedicated her whole life to our future. And that's maybe personally rewarding, but society, in society, that's not very rewarding. She got to be in her 60s and she hadn't thought much about what her life, you know, plans were going to be outside of what my father's were. And so when they got divorced, like her whole life fell apart. And she's only now getting a sense of what it, what it's like to be, you know, a person in the world on her own terms. Even a family of that size isn't necessarily a life she asked for or wanted, you know. No, she definitely didn't want that. You know, she was like a young person in the 60s. And so she even signed a pledge saying she would have no more than two kids because just to replace her and her partner in the world because overpopulation was a major concern and there's limited resources. So I think it's really funny that someone who was like the max kids I'll have is two and not even some kind of yearning to have any kids at all ended up having four. And then her whole life changed because of it. My mom, you know, had, God, she had also four kids you know, by the time she was 27, like me and my youngest brother are 10 years apart, you know, and, you know, I'm one of four on, you know, one side, and then, you know, I'm an only child, you know, with my, my mother and my father. And so, it, it, yeah, it's interesting to be in, in both sides of those situations, kind of like watching each of my kind of parent dynamics in relationship to immediate family, that they're very different. You know, my mother is only now she and my stepfather are also divorced and, you know, she's only recently within the last year, you know, owns her own house for the first time, you know, in her life. I mean, I don't know how, if this is off topic or not, but I, but I'm, you know, wondering like what was called upon her in her life, you know, from having me, you know, at 17 years old, you know, or sorry, 19 years old, you know, what, what were the extra things that were asked of her, you know, and, and fortunately, you know, she had a lot of family helped to sort of watch me while she was at work or, you know, fortunately, like, you know, my, my stepfather was like a very willing, you know, parent, you know, for a kid that wasn't his own. But yeah, I mean, you know, the kids kept coming <laughs> and like these, these dynamics and responsibilities just evolved, you know, and, and so, yeah, I just, I kind of wonder about that experience. I think the reason why, you know, we're getting this question from the person who's going through the IVF is because being a parent plays such a such an enormous role on the person who's going to give birth, like the mother in the family. It's it's way more of a question for women because at limited time when you can have kids, 
And then on top of that, if you give birth, you're going to bear the physical brunt of it. If you breastfeed, then the baby's like attached to you for however long that happens. And then in society, I mean, as we've seen, like just with our own mothers, you know, Lyndon and my mother, there's so much sacrificing that happens. And I find as well that because it's like a good thing to be like a working mom and to be achieving things, that it still is a sacrifice. So sometimes I feel this sort of, whether it's me or anyone else, sort of working and doing kind of all kinds of stuff has like the potential of erasing the actual, the visibility of the type of work or the energy that goes into both being pregnant and giving birth and being a parent. I mean, there are a limited number of hours in the day yeah that leads to a question i have for you Anna. like do you find that now having a child as i said like i'm good at like giving myself time off right so <laughs> so in, in some ways i find it challenging to go and be productive or to do work i have to do on my agenda you know even without the responsibility of like caring for someone else but some could argue like oh having that gives you a structure right because you absolutely have to do what you have to do you know, in the limited amount of time. Are you finding that or is it just more free form? Well, not that much, but I think my partner and I, we were both like excited because we'd heard about other artists that actually started to get like so much structure in their lives after having kids. But I think we realized we already have a lot of structure. <laughs> so, uh, so that it, it hasn't been that much of a change. And I mean, we still uh, are like the main caretakers of her. So, so I still haven't... Uh, gotten to that point but I still feel though that I'm maybe not even more efficient but I don't I like I don't have time to like second guess or like doubt my decisions because they're just not that time doesn't exist I make a decision and then I just like that's what it <laughs> you have to carry on yeah so it's helped you be more decisive maybe not even helped me it just like made me like a, there's like no option of like changing my mind or doing things again or yeah how, how does this decision factor into, you know, one's own, like, physical, mental, emotional health? You know, does it does it add to it or does it, like, you know, tax it even more? You know, like, uh, does it does it does it stretch that even even further? I think it's really difficult for my mental health, this parenting thing, this this first year. And I, yeah, so I, I was expecting that it could be challenging for me. But, uh, but yeah, I'm still like, how do everyone, not everyone, but like, how do most people do this? I'm getting a lot of support and help for my mental health, but I'm, it's really, it's, <laughs> it is a challenge. The Friends season of Ask Adelaide and Anna was commissioned for The Real Show at CAC Bretigny. Curated by Agnès Violo and Céline Poulin. And is supported by OCA, the Office for Contemporary Art Norway and Stavanger Municipality. Thanks to Anna's neighbor, Benjamin, who was so kind to record his cats chatting for us to use in our jingles this season. Thanks for listening.